Um, There's something about seeing people who don't fit comfortably into the mainstream. I find there's something emotionally so satisfying about seeing them find a place with other people who don't fit into the mainstream. And so all of my books have that as one of their themes. Um, and so this is part of what's going on with all these side characters is just finding that place to, to belong. I was a, as a kid, you know, I wrote about it in the memoir, not uh, like very peculiar. Welcome back to the Red Fern Book Review. I am your host, Amy Mayer, and today I am joined by best-selling BC author, or national author actually, uh, Susan Juby, and she's based in Nanaimo, BC, and she's written a lot of other books, including Alice, I Think, Nice Recovery, and Republic of Dirt, which won the Leacock Medal for Humor. Um, she's best known for her young adult novels, but I first found out about her. One of my favorite books is her, uh, book called the Woefield Poultry Collective. So we can talk about that too, but we're here today to talk about, um, her book called Mindful of Murder. And it is debuted. It came out last month and it debuted as number one on the Canadian independent booksellers list of new releases and number eight in Canadian fiction. And it's also part of a book subscription box that I've put together with a local independent bookseller in Vancouver known as Book Warehouse. So with that, I just wanted to say hello, Susan, and thank you so much for joining. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, I wanted to start, before we get into book talk, you have posted online, um, you recently made a very special purchase and you bought an instant pot. Can you explain what that's all about? (laughs) I, uh, well, when I got the great news that the book had debuted at number one, that was, you know, that felt very extraordinary. And I have a student who wrote a story where she described having that instant pot money. And I was always so taken. I thought that was such a charming idea. And so I thought, well, that's how I'm going to splash out is I'm going to have a, I feel like I have, might have instant pot money now. So I went and got an instant pot. I did not get the air fryer attachment because I don't think we're at that stage yet, but one day, one day. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really cute. And um, yeah, it, yeah, that's clever. Um, okay. So you're, I want, you kind of combine, a, to me, a bunch of genres, and particularly in this book. Um, and I wanted to, how do you describe, how would you classify your writing? Because this, you've written a mystery, but it's also a romp, in my opinion. It's also a BC book. What, how do you describe, what, how would you just classify your writing? In this book, well, it's a mystery. Um, and I would say on the continuum of, you know, hard boiled, 
and cozy, it's sort of like way over toward the cozy. So, you know, it's meant to be a funny murder mystery um, with, you know, some thoughtfulness in it, but it's, it's certainly a cozier take on the murder mystery than, you know, there's not, there's no torture. Um, All the tough stuff mostly happens off stage. Um, So tell, tell everybody, why don't you give everyone a synopsis? Sure. It's always a little difficult um, to boil it down. You know, writers, they like to, uh, I'll just, 45 minutes later, I'll be finished with with every little detail of my amazing book. Um, it's a book about um, a woman who has a, um, a really, you know, beautiful retreat center, a new age retreat center on a fictional Gulf Island or Discovery Island. And she dies suddenly. Um, and her former lodge manager, who is has just graduated from Butler School, goes back to take care of um, sort of a task she's been given in the dead woman's will. And the task is to determine which of the relatives should take over the lodge. And so it's and so what happens is at this retreat center, there are a number of different courses. And so what the woman has asked, her name is Edna Todd, has asked her former lodge manager to give them all the most popular courses at this lodge. And her lodge manager becomes the detective. Um, and she is a very, um, she's a former Buddhist and a meditation teacher, and she's just gone to become a butler. Um, and so it's about figuring out um, gradually that the woman was murdered. She didn't die naturally. And that one of these people is probably responsible for her death. So that is the the galloping synopsis. And so it's full of Gulf Island um, people and, you know, odd odd people. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just had a lot of fun with it. Um, I, I really enjoyed um, the local references and I kind of pulled a couple, you know, you talk about um, if you live around here, there's a fun place to go for oysters called Smitty's Oyster House. You talked about that, talked about local beer, Arbutus trees, you rip on Nanaimo, which is where you live, which sometimes gets, (laughs) gets teased, Fanny Bay oysters, but um, one of my favorite things, you have a really funny quote, and you said, um, it was the police detective is investigating and says, that's the strangest thing I've heard all week. And I'm a police, I am police for seven different Gulf islands. And, you know, it's kind of, yeah, if you live on an island, it, it can be quite quirky. But how would you, I wanted to ask you in that vein, like, how did your British Columbia upbringing or just living where you do um, impact your writing and how does it, how does it appear in your writing? Would you say? Well, the way my writing comes to me is I think of a character often with a, you know, a voice, like literally a voice whispering or something like that, or some image. And then it's, I put them into a place and the place is always in um, almost always in a small town. So uh, my first books were all set in Smithers, Smithers, which is in Northern British Columbia, which is where I grew up. Um, and the my books since then have taken place around Nanaimo, somewhere in Nanaimo, or because I started spending a bunch of time at a retreat center on a Gulf Island at a place that looks a lot like that retreat center, <laughs> that Gulf Island. So I tend to be very situated in where I am. Um, and in my imagination, what I've tried to write in larger cities because I've lived in Toronto and I've lived in Vancouver and I can't get 
I can't get interested in the same way that I am in the dynamics of a smaller place. Um, there's just something about that small town environment that um, appeals to me very much. And I love representing um, where I live in a place that people would understand. I think there's um, a little bit of not class warfare, but when I was first writing, it was expected that that's where stories took place, right? So they were in Toronto, they were in London, they were in New York. And I thought, well, I think stories might also happen in some less less cool places. <laughs> um, so I'm going to write about them. And uh, so I wrote like about Smithers as Smithers, Nanaimo as Nanaimo. In this case, because it's a murder mystery, I created an island um, called Sutil Island that is, as I say, very similar to Cortez Island. Um. Why don't we set up, why don't we do a reading to give people a flavor of what, what this is all about? And you've picked a passage, so why don't you set that up? And Sure. Uh, I'm going to read a couple of pages from the beginning of the book. And so at this stage in the book, Helen, who is the former lodge manager, was sent to Butler School by her former employer, who has died suddenly, but Helen doesn't know this. So this is the very beginning of the book where all the recent graduates, um, Butler graduates, if if you're not familiar with Butler's, <laughs> like the modern <laughs> manifestation of the Butler, is that Butler's are a big thing now. Very wealthy. There's a lot of very wealthy oh, really? people. Oh. Yeah, there's, yeah. So there's um, colleges and universities, well, not universities, colleges where you go to train as a Butler and they're all over the world, including in Toronto. This one's set in, um, said in the United States, they're big in the Netherlands. So these billionaires, they want, uh, they want domestic help, um, but high-end domestic help. So a butler school is a, is a, is a thing. Um, so this is the beginning of, um, the beginning of the book. So it's all the butlers getting ready for their headshots and all the rest of it that they'll put on. Um, there is a, also a website, I believe it's called butler.com where you go and you, you know, you can look at all the new butlers and find this, one for is yourself. Is this for real? Is this for real? Oh, this is absolutely for real. Yeah. Oh my so, goodness. Okay. Yeah. No, butlers are, uh, butlers are, um, butlers are a big deal right now. So I'll just read you a little bit, um, from the beginning. The butlers, so they're watching the photographer um, who has come to do all their headshots and they've been partying the night before because they just graduated. The butlers, who'd been up all night, watched him work, him being the photographer, with well-disguised bleariness. They'd kicked off the festivities the night before with a lavish dinner at a fine French restaurant, followed by visits to a series of bars and clubs. After they closed down a speakeasy at 3.30 a.m., they'd gone to the beach for a sunrise bonfire. At five, they headed back to their dorm rooms in the old mansion that housed the North American Butler Academy, which, according to the marketing materials, was in the business of creating specialists in domestic excellence. They cleaned themselves up for the early morning photo shoot, which would involve group shots and individual portraits to be used for their professional profiles on butler.com and the school's advertising materials. Helen didn't drink and had quietly put herself in charge of keeping the rest of the butlers from being roofied or otherwise coming to harm. No butler left behind, she'd said to the youngest of them, a girl <laughs> from Virginia by way of Ireland named Murray, whom Helen had retrieved from behind a leatherette couch in the quiet room of a dance club, filled with music that sounded like multiple emergency vehicles converging on a construction site. I love you, Helen, Murray had said. Everyone loves you. You're so relaxing. 
All night, the other graduates gave versions of the same speech to Helen. She smiled, enjoying the feeling of caring for them. They were butlers, so they were easy to love. Helen knew not everyone in her new career would be so easy. Her job would be filled with difficult people the way most jobs were. One shot with all of you smiling, said the photographer who had slicked back hair and a face that was faintly haggard under his tan. He gave them a strange little smile, as though to demonstrate what a smile was. The hungover butlers gave indistinct smiles in return. Yes, yeah, that's right. Everyone likes a butler who can smile. Am I right? He muttered as he clicked away. Okay, now, he said, standing and nearly running backward to get a new angle. Beautiful, beautiful. But before he could finish, his heel hit the lip of the dock and he pitched back. His body went rigid and he began to windmill his arms. The camera flew into the air like a brick hurled in a riot. Helen reacted instantly. She took four giant steps and caught the device before it could smash onto the dock. Then she set it down and stepped over to the photographer who was thrashing around in the oily water. Help, he screamed, coming up for air. Can you swim? She asked, as though it was, although it was obvious he could. He'd already started churning his way toward a ladder hanging off the side of the dock, moving with all the ease of a pug in a pool, which is to say without much ease at all. What? He spluttered. Are you okay? Said Helen slowly. Yes. He spit out a mouthful of water. My camera. My damn camera. My life is ruined. It's here, she said, holding it up. Don't worry. I've got it. It's safe. He reached the ladder and scrambled up, trying to catch his breath. You save my camera instead of me? He stared at her. Before Helen could respond, he went on, You're a goddess. I spent the rest of my money on that lens. For this gig, I could kiss you. He gazed up at her calm face, and something about it caused him to revise his words. But I won't, obviously. Helen's going to be the best butler since Jeeves, said Gavin Vimukthi, the elegant man who'd come to stand behind, beside Helen. He reached out a hand to help the photographer back onto the deck. So this is the kind of thing that Helen does is she uh, she handles things. And she has um, part of the fun of Helen is that she has this ability to understand what's important um, to people from paying really, really careful attention to them. And uh, yeah, and she's a she's a bit of a day saver is Helen. And she's surrounded by the kookiest people. But she's <laughs> she's not she's not. Uh, and that's another thing I have to say. One of the things that I really like about your book books is that these side characters that you create. I guess she's kind of the. Would you call her the straight man? Is she, is that yeah. correct? And then these it allows these other people just to kind of um, go off the rails. And I have a question of what what role you seem to have a lot of side characters or very special ones like in this book I was really taken with Nigel who's mm -hmm. a local person who I really feel if he was in a big town I don't know what would happen to him if he was in Vancouver <laughs> but I think he's a, um what role do the side characters play for you Oh, well, they're, you know, they're a great part of the joy of creating characters. So they all have sort of florid personality disorders. <laughs> they've got, they've got issues, all of them. Um, and that's, you know, I love writing weirdos. Like I absolutely love a good weirdo. And so usually in my book, there'll be a couple of people who are, um, in Helen's case, she's got very, she's emotionally um, calm. She's like a balanced personality. She's a very stable individual and she's only a stable individual could deal with these people. Um, and so for me, the side characters 
are just part of the joy. Like I've always got my eye out for people who are a little bit off. I love them. I feel like they're my people. Um, and I really love people who are off in such a way that um, you can tell that like, that's just who they are. Um, and I sort of admire people who don't let all the edges get, um, uh, you know, smoothed off by expectations who manage to um, retain some quirks. And I've always loved eccentrics in books um, and in life. Um, you have said in your, in an interview that people should not be afraid to write unlikable characters. And also in this book, you have some people that just, they don't seem very nice, or at least that's how they appear to start. And they seem greedy and snobby. And um, what can you say about writing an unlikable character? Well, they're quite a bit more fun to write than likable characters. Um, I mean, there's, you know, eccentrics and then there's like genuinely unpleasant people, but they're quite, I find unpleasant people really like interesting. Um, And in this case, they're all, you know, there are a number of people who are like overtly unpleasant. They're not polite. They're not (laughs) kind. They're sarcastic. Um, But over the course of the book, we discover that there are reasons for each of those sort of character flaws that they have. And in fact, um, because the book has a bit of a Buddhist undertone, um, they're all modeled on what are called the hindrances in Buddhism. Oh. And so the hindrances are sloth, ill will, um, doubt, uh, like there's a whole set of hindrances. And each of those people, including one of the characters who doesn't come to the lodge, is one of the hindrances. And so the hindrances in Buddhism are the things that stop us from living our full life like there are the problems we have that make it difficult to meditate or make it difficult to like achieve some kind of um like you know the the good qualities of life where you're present and you're happy and you've got uh, joy in your heart those things so in this case those people are actually and we see underneath the hindrances they do have things that are positive uh, what what role does meditation play or did it play in you coming up with this book? Yes. Um, so I was working on the book for a number of, a number of years, like just, you know, I had other books and I was like, oh, I would really like to write a, a murder mystery, um, but it's got to be funny. And I need a detective who's kind of a fresh sort of approach to the detective. And, um, and it just wasn't gelling. I had a detective who was a former police officer who was, you know, kicked off the force and I have no real connection to that. Like I, have to, I was like, Oh, well, <laughs> it just felt very, yeah, I couldn't get a handle on her and I was at a retreat. Um, so I do a fair bit of retreating and I was at a meditation retreat and I was paying attention to the teachers and in particular, my relationship to those teachers. So I sit, uh, as, as we say, with um, a couple of like very advanced teachers who've been um, studying seriously since the 70s and, and met lots of the really important um, people in um, in the sort of Western Buddhism movement and all the rest of that stuff. And so when I would go to have a sit, um, an interview with them, which happens at retreats, uh, you know, your interviews are like 10 or 15 minutes every couple of days just to make sure you're okay as you sit in silence for two weeks or however long. So as I would get ready to go to these interviews, I would start to like, oh my God, I really hope they think I'm amazing. <laughs> I'm a very advanced Buddhist and, and I'm not an advanced Buddhist, not remotely. 
Um, and then I would go to talk to them and I have all my kind of, and I wouldn't want to, but I would catch myself like, oh, I want to make myself look this way and I want to look fantastic and, or come across as, um, perhaps more advanced than I am. And I would get there and there would be a quality to that teacher where I would think, and all the defenses would come down and I would just tell the truth. Um, and I thought that would make a great detective is a person who had, um, who was a very skilled, uh, meditation practitioner because there's people who have some attainment in Buddhism often seem like they see things in a really clear way. And it feels like you feel like a presence that makes you want to open up. So that's where she came from is um, my experience of meditation teachers. And, you know, often what happens when I go into interviews is I'll tell some truth and they just sort of cry. (laughs) Not there. They don't, I don't think they probably enjoy that very much, but that's what happens. Um, And so I thought, and you know, the interview is the basic beat of the mystery, right? So there's no mystery without people talking to other people. And there's a particular way it happens in Buddhism and in, um, on retreat so that gave that's great so it had that authenticity for you that allowed you to kind of um it was it was that was your springboard um Mm -hmm. okay I have a couple some other questions you talk a lot about food in this book or I thought you did and I think there are mysteries that kind of focus on that as well like maybe cozier mysteries is that um what 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 caused you to do that or did you see it? Was that intentional? Yeah, it was absolutely intentional. A lot of my favorite writers have always focused on um, food. So James Harriet, like I loved everything about James Harriet, the animals, the funny, et cetera. But when he would stop for a description of Yorkshire pudding, I was absolutely there for it. <laughs> um, um, even, you know, like Louise Penny um, in the cafe. I oh, right. that's my favorite is to go into the cafe and with gamache and have some croissant and that sort of thing. So I thought that's a favorite part of it. And so I wanted to talk about food. And also when you go on retreat, food takes on an absolutely extreme importance uh, for somebody like me. So I end up thinking, Ooh, what are we going to have for lunch? Um, I know I'm supposed to be meditating, but I'm spending a lot of time thinking about this lunch that's going to happen. So that's why. Okay. Um, and what other, in that vein, what, who else are your literary influences, would you say? Well, there's a lot of comic writers that I admire. Um, PG Woodhouse, James Harriet, um, David Niven, Sue Townsend, like a lot of British writers of a certain era. Um, and then I, you know, I very much admire Louise Penny and John Sanford and, um, Tana French and uh, Osman with the Thursday Murder Club. There's, yeah, I love, you know, murder mysteries, as particularly the ones that have a little element of humor in them. Um, that's my favorite is when somebody can pull that off. Do you think that you will, are you going to reprise this? Is this going to be a sequel? It sort of seems like it could be. Yeah, that I wrote it hoping to come up with a character that I could put into different situations. And so the idea is that, Helen Thorpe will go from um, the situation she's in, her initial post-Butler school murder situation, and then she'll be put into different situations. So she's going to go to the people who've hired her, um, a very well-established, extremely wealthy family, 
And my idea is that they're going to essentially second her out to their friends now and then when people really need an advanced butler, she'll go and there will be crimes and she will have to solve them. So I've got two outlines for other books and I've started the second one. I'm sort of fairly far into the second one. It's a very different kind of world, but it's a world of, you know, wealth and privilege and criminality. And then another thing I felt when I was reading this, and in fact, I think you refer to it, it reminded me of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Mm. Like, is, was that an influence for you, this book? Well, I love the Roald Dahl, um, and uh, I have a niece who's completely obsessed with Roald Dahl, so that's what we do, is we listen to audiobooks of Roald Dahl over and over and everything except for the adult stuff. So we spent a lot of time listening to Roald Dahl. So maybe it got in there. I didn't think about, you know, the the ticket or any of that sort of stuff. But yeah, you're right. There were probably some resonances there. It seemed like there was a, you know, because there's a test that all these relatives have to go through. And then he's looking for things and and there's something in a way. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. I, I think the movie is darker than the book. It's been a while. but Yeah, I haven't seen the movie. The movie's really dark. Is it? Okay. Like kind of creepy. And I think there've been a couple of them, but they, um, but I think that there's also, which you're kind of pulling out the humanity. And um, another, one of my last questions is about, you seem to really be um, attracted to the underdog in that. And so what's that about? Uh, Well, um, you know, I don't think it's, I'm particularly um, unusual in that. Um, There's something about seeing people who don't fit comfortably into the mainstream. I find there's something emotionally so satisfying about seeing them find a place with other people who don't fit into the mainstream. And so all of my books have that as one of their themes. Um, and so this is part of what's going on with all these side characters is just finding that place to, to belong. I was a, as a kid, you know, I wrote about it in the memoir, not uh, like very peculiar, like just powerfully odd child. And I had no idea that was a problem until I went to school. And I was like, Aww. oh, this is very hard to be odd. Um, and in my case, what I did was I just, you know, if the devil had come by, I would have just said, Oh, my soul, I would like to fit in please. And I sort of did a version of that. And, but there's still this like inner weirdo, um, who is calling the shots. And so I, I so much admire people who allow their inner weirdo. I mean, not if it's, you know, unpleasant or whatever, but people who are a little off kilter, like I don't like the flattening effect of, um, sort of our social structures. And you wouldn't, and the irony is, is that you would not be the successful writer you were if you didn't have, um, I mean, if you, if you weren't unusual in some way, because then it wouldn't be special and unique. So Hmm. actually just having raised, well, raised children, you try to tell them that, but I guess they have to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I teach at a university, so, um, I see a lot of students in the creative writing program in particular who've really held on to um, that. And then, you know, I, and often they have a history in the school of, you know, having a hard time. And then they come and they're, oh, my people. And it's so beautiful to see that connection and all that flourishing of creativity and peculiarity. And anyway, I find it endlessly. Um, yeah, I feel really, really good about that. 
Oh, well, that's great. Well, um, that's, that's all I have to ask you. And I just, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on. And I really encourage people to read this book. It, it was, I think for me, and I don't know exactly, I mean, there's probably a number of reasons why it's doing so well, but when I picked it, um, I knew that you were funny, but kind of smart, funny. And that's a kind of a hard spot Mm -hmm. sometimes to find. And I think with all that we've been through as a, as a unit, as a society, I just wanted to laugh and, mm-hmm. and enjoy. And so I, I, I recommend that this book. Oh. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much to Susan Juby for coming on the podcast. And I just wanted to remind everyone that her book is part of a very special book subscription box that I've put together with Book Warehouse. And you can find it at bookwarehouse.ca and it's available for delivery or pickup in Vancouver and delivery anywhere else in Canada. And the book box includes um, a copy, a signed copy of Mindful of Murder, a review by me, a tote bag, a notepad, and a bookmark. So it's kind of the perfect gift. It could be perfect for Mother's Day, which is right around the corner, or a birthday, or if you want to treat yourself, And I just wanted to thank everyone so much for tuning in and come back on May 13th when I'm going to be looking at screenplays as uh, reading material. And my good friend Miriam is going to review Lost in Translation and Once Upon a Time in America. Or Hollywood. Sorry, that's a different movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I'll talk with you then. Thanks so much.